millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is Bounty Hunters, which means I get to talk about Star Wars, I get to talk about Pedro Pascal, and I get to talk about something that goes back perhaps a little longer than you may think, but is absolutely an American thing. There's a reason why we tend to feel that Bounty Hunters is a bit of American pop culture, because it's only mentioned in American pop culture because they simply don't exist in places like France or England or wherever. So, let's start off. I, I'm, I'm going to talk about Bounty Hunters, which, as I sort of queued up, the first time most people are aware of them as a concept is Star Wars, okay? But first of all, I want to give you the modern definition of what a Bounty Hunter is. They are a private agent working for bail bonds, capturing fugitives for a commission or bounty. And the actual term, because they don't like the term bounty hunter, the actual modern term in America is a bail enforcement agent, which, let's be honest, isn't as cool as bounty hunter. Now, the first bounty hunter that we hear about in Star Wars, and when I did my episode about mercenaries, I made passing reference to Boba Fett and Jango Fett and people like that. But it is Boba Fett. And what happens is, in the scene in Empire Strikes Back, because he's not in Star Wars A New Hope, the first time you see him, Darth Vader is on the deck of his Super Star Destroyer, and he's got this just rogues gallery of weird and wonderful looking creatures. And if you like, for a, a young child or a sci-fi fan, it's like, oh my goodness, look at all these things that don't look like anything else in Star Wars. And also, they've each got their own story and background. That's just, just triggers the imagination. It just gets the creative juices flowing. And so unsurprisingly, a whole bunch of them have had entire novels now considered legendary rather than canon. But for a good 20, 30 years, these people were considered real people who really got their guy, etc. And you've got the robots. And this is the other thing. Their names, most of their names, aren't even mentioned in the movie. You had to get it from the toys. The Kenner plastic toys the sort of roughly the three-inch tall toys of 
Uh, so I think it's three and three quarter inches is the standard size for something like that. I could be wrong, but anyway, the idea was that they were actually smaller than the likes of G.I. Joe Action Man from the 60s and 70s because you couldn't possibly build an X-Wing fighter. So you needed something substantially smaller to fit in anyway. Courtesy of the packaging of the Kenner products, I discovered that one guy who looked like he basically kind of had a towel on his head and had cool armor was called Dengar. And the lizard guy who sort of like punctuates the end of the scene, which just is just is so weird to everything else in the scene is called Bosk. And then there's the tall robot, IG-88. Interestingly, his head you can actually see in the original Star Wars because they reused a bit of the cantina which was used for drinks dispensers, turned it upside down, slapped it on a robot body and ta-da! We now have a bounty hunting robot called IG-88. And, of course, the big daddy of them all, there was Boba Fett. And the thing that made Boba Fett so cool in Empire Strikes Back is obviously by now we've seen a movie and a half, if you like, of Darth Vader stomping around and terrifying everybody. It is a great moment in the original Star Wars where you clearly have all these very senior officers on something called the Death Star. You know, this is the high table, if you like, of the creme de la creme of the Imperial officers. And they're sort of arguing with Darth Vader, so I guess they feel that they can hold their own against him in terms of rank, but then all Darth Vader has to do is put his fingers towards each other, almost looks like he's going to pinch somebody, and then the actor has to sit there and look like they're choking and they can't breathe. Add in a little bit of a sound effect there. It's, it's incredibly cheap. It costs no money whatsoever, but it absolutely creates an atmosphere, and you just think, wow, this guy can obviously choke out an admiral with no consequences he is badass and then as there's this huge battle going on around the death star he and two other fighter pilots are going to take down the entire rebels and he does a pretty good job of it only not getting luke just at the end because of force and more importantly han solo anyway we know that darth vader terrifies everybody that he deals with nobody dares stand up to him and those who do can get choked. And then we see Boba Fett having an argument with Darth Vader. And this again sort of triggered all these like little imaginations, be it sci-fi writers, be it eight-year-olds or what have you, as they're sitting there going, Boba Fett has to be extremely powerful and capable himself if he feels that he has the ability to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with something like Darth Vader. And so a legend was born. But of course, that's not what happened with Darth Vader. Oh, I should say with Boba Fett. Because, do you know what? Actually, I could put them both together. Whereas, in Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader does have this sort of nice moment of clarity with his son. And it's quite touching. Although, when they take off the helmet, he's a rather... Okay, I don't... He's got scars and things like that, which is what I was expecting. But also... It just kind of looks like someone's granddad. I guess he needs to be a bit more scarred, a bit more terrifying for it. But it is a nice moment when he takes off the mask and finally sees his son face to face for the very first time without a helmet on. And obviously that will be the last time. And it's also worth pointing out that it's Darth Vader that ends up killing the Emperor. So all these reasons, you know, Darth Vader has a fitting end. But people can't, if it's a good thing particularly in a franchise or sci-fi world, people can't help it and start picking away at it. It's like, hey, do you want to know about the originals? And so when it comes to things like the prequels, 
there was huge excitement around them. But as one writer said when the prequel started going out, somewhere in another universe or something, there is a prequel which starts as Darth Vader or Anakin Skywalker as a teenage tearaway, a bit like Han Solo, only rather than being a cheeky road, just going darker and darker, and through desperation ends up falling to the dark side. I would have watched that. Instead, what did we get? We get in episode one a little kid who is a pod racing pilot, because they keep saying pilot, because they have to say pilot, because when Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars in 1977 says, when I first met your father, he was already a gifted pilot, but if he's a small kid, he can't possibly be piloting a starship, so we have to call pod racers really pod pilots, because that would make, therefore, what Obi-Wan Kenobi says later make sense. Ugh retconning uh throwaway lines from a movie that never knew it was going to get a sequel uh how annoying anyway so the thing about darth is the more we saw him and you know then we get into attack of the clones and revenge of the sith and there are moments of coolness with darth but there's just a bit too much naffness and the famous no bit when he finds out that amidala dies for reasons i mean the line she's lost the will to live as Robot Chicken pointed out, it goes, what's your doctorate in? Poetry? You've got literally billions of dollars of machines around here. Can nobody fix her? Anyway, let's go back to Boba Fett. But with Boba Fett, there was a bigger problem. And in this is one of the rare occasions where they did have to retcon it. Now, George Lucas had spent many years tinkering with the original trilogy, improving some of the special effects. One of the first things that was changed, a lot of people don't realize that in the original release of 1977 Star Wars, all of the labels were in English, which just doesn't make them very alien from a galaxy far, far away kind of stuff. And so what he did is he created a new alphabet and, and new language and, you know, pretty cursory. It wasn't at the same level as when Tolkien made languages, but that was out there and, and it's still being used today in the 21st century, nearly 50 years later. Well done, George. Good change. Only added to it. But he kept tinkering with them. The famous thing about who shot first in the cantina. But then we get to Boba Fett. Now, the original voice of Boba Fett was of this English actor. And he just had this snarl to it. And it worked really well. But of course, once it turned out that Boba Fett was the son of Jango Fett. And Jango Fett was the DNA that was used for the entire clone army, for further information on all of that, watch Attack of the Clones, that's Star Wars episode 2. You've now got, actually, a guy of Polynesian ancestry, I, th I believe he's a Maori. You've now got the problem of, hang on, Boba Fett doesn't really sound like that. And so, <laughs> so uh, what do we do now? And so they had to basically get the actor to redo all of the quotes from Empire Strikes Back and Return the Jedi. And whereas Darth Vader had a quite a fitting end in Return the Jedi, it does show you, you know, the circle becomes complete, as Darth Vader even says at one point. So the, the problem is, well, yes, we've had to change the, the vocal talents to Tamura Morrison, who was the man who played all of the clones and Jango Fett, and therefore would also have to do the voice of the adult Boba Fett. Unfortunately, what they couldn't change is how they got rid of Boba Fett. Now, apparently what that was is Boba Fett was originally created in the late 70s, and at the time, George Lucas was thinking about making him the next big bad. It was completely fluid at that point. Maybe Boba Fett was 
Darth Vader's boss, maybe Boba Fett was the name of the Emperor, whatever, but when they went out for a big parade in the 1970s, the one bit of new thing in California where George Lucas created a parade and people were marching down the streets in the outfits from the movie, you know, it was a big deal, this is all pre-internet, Boba Fett was the first thing there, and, and photos went around everywhere, and as I said in the previous episode about mercenaries, you know, Boba Fett, because of the cool helmet and stuff like that, he was in articles and things like that, he became an icon for The Empire Strikes Back, even though he's in it for a few minutes. But the thing is, if you're not quite sure what to do with him, and now we're into third movie, what do you do? I just, just let him fall down a hole. And that's exactly what happens with Boba Fett. And he even goes down with a scream, and he just comes across like a chump rather than like an extremely dangerous man who one movie earlier had been toe-to-toe -to -toe with Darth Vader, and Darth Vader didn't know if he could take him. So, if you like, the mystery behind Boba Fett, what's under that mask, lasted for decades but you know it's one of these things be careful what you wish for it may come true and we got more boba fett and seeing him as a a whiny kid in attack of the clones but seeing dad jango fett was you know particularly badass again but the thing about this is that according to the law jango fett gave his dna but they had to reduce the amount of violent tendencies and more willing to comply with orders which is obviously what you want from an army but he wanted one clone which grew naturally rather than too quickly and also basically was him again so just as aggressive just as anti-authoritarian etc and that's how we get boba fett so that you know it's like yeah, okay i guess that's a direction to go but then even more problematically is Disney needed content on their new thing called Disney Plus. So while they're making The Mandalorian, a bit more on that later in Mandalorian Season 2, they finally reveal something that had been shown in comics and books before that Boba Fett had not died falling into the Sarlacc pit, that he had managed to blast his way out. Good for you, Boba. Or it's a Boba. That's the other thing. He's called two different things. It's like Han and Han. Depending on who's talking to Han Solo, he gets a different pronunciation of his first name. And it's the same thing with Boba, Boba, whatever. In Mandalorian Season 2, we all collectively lost our cool as we saw Boba Fett do something that we'd we only seen in comic books in the... And, like I say, books in the 1980s. Like, ah, he's out. But of course... The movies that had Tamura Morrison in back in the early 2000s, we're now in like 2020. This is 20 years on. And whereas he was a jobbing actor around about 40 years old and he's sort of like playing the clones, that, you know, that's fine. Makes sense. Then nobody knew. George Lucas didn't know that this would be something they'd be doing in 20 years time. But now we've got an action hero in inverted commas who's 60 and he's an actor. He's not like a, a stuntman or something like this. Isn't This is not his gigging job as it were and so then after mandalorian season two we get the book of boba fett and i like everybody else was super excited for it and i like everybody else was super underwhelmed by it and even disney admitted it as basically about three quarters of the way through the series there's literally two episodes which are back to the mandalorian again boba fett's barely in it in fact he might not even be in one of the episodes as we just follow Dinjarin, the Mandalorian, and if in end of series two, he'd got rid of Grogu, and now he gets Grogu back again in a different series, so that when they start Mandalorian series three, if you haven't seen the book of Boba Fett, it's like, hang on, why are these two back together again? Gotta watch another series to find that out. Plus, they had these 
weird mod style, as in mods and rockers in Britain in the 1960s. Basically, you either rode a motorbike rocker or you're a mod driving a moped, which you sort of like pimped and fashioned to be your own thing, perhaps too many wing mirrors and stuff like that. It's like, that's a very weird thing to have in Tatooine. And the other problem is now, it's not the Book of Boba Fett's fault. He actually was taken out on Tatooine. So the story's going to have to be on Tatooine. And I guess the Mandalorian's going to have to go to Tatooine if he's going to... But it does mean that there's an awful lot of the TV series where it's like on the same dusty planet, which again, the whole point of 1977 Star Wars was Tatooine, was the middle of nowhere. But thanks to ongoing stuff, it seems to be the centre of the universe. There's more interesting stuff going on Tatooine than there is even on Coruscant, the Imperial capital. I think you can tell I'm, I've got opinions on this stuff. But let's go into The Mandalorian, because that was the first Star Wars TV series, which again, in when it came out in 2019, we were all super psyched for. And the first two series, and i got to, got to sort of like shout out to Pedro Pascal, is actually The Mandalorian. Now, Pedro Pascal's just had year after year of really good stuff, and particularly 2022 and 23, he's had Last of Us, he's had The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent with Nicolas Cage, he's had Mandalorian Season 3, it's just like, just end, I mean, at one point, there was literally Last of Us and Mandalorian on at the same time in the weeks, you know, you literally, they were overlapping, so it's just like, he is finally super hot and he should be. He's a great actor. I talk about him more in the Narcos episode as well. You can see he sort of overlaps all these different things. But just seeing him, just like Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back, the first thing you see either of them do is literally what a bounty hunter is meant to do. There's an escape fugitive. In the case of Boba, it's Han Solo who has failed to carry out a contract and now there is a price on his head. This is literally what the Wild West was about. More on that in a bit. And it's the same thing with the Mandalorian. As he goes out, he literally comes in and meets Carl Weathers who plays Grief Karga, who is literally a sort of a bondsman who says, okay, there's this mission, that mission, it's worth this much to you, that much to you. This is exactly how a bounty hunter works. Except... What happens with Boba Fett, and this is why he ends up in the Mercenary episode, is because they start becoming hard muscle in the movies, and it's like you're not hiring them. I mean, literally, Jango Fett is ordered to assassinate Princess Armadala. That is a different job. Assassin, hitman, is a different job compared to a bounty hunter. And bounty hunters are semi-policing opportunities. They're not actually police force, but they are sort of semi legal agents and they're certainly not allowed to carry out assassinations on the side because those are illegal don't want to get too carried away on all the technical speak in this episode but yeah you can't do that and the other job sorry about that and then mercenaries i guess that is legal in some situations but in essence you're a soldier there'll be a bunch of you going out and getting the stuff so what's happening in empire strikes back is darth vader is saying there is a bounty on this man all of you go get them. So they're all competing against each other to try and hunt them down. Indeed, Dengar in the books, his thing is he keeps just missing Han Solo, but Han Solo's really scared of Dengar because he just won't stop coming after him. It's a good little side story. These things won't ever probably ever be mentioned again, but hey-ho. In the case of the Mandalorian, he's all about gathering the stuff, and that's how he even meets Baby Yoda, better known as Grogu, because he's meant to get a thing. But it's one of these things where, again, even with Din Djarin, he's sort of like leaning into the, the muscle, the heavy bodyguard kind of thing. 
But the great thing about Mandalorian is it riffs off so many bits of history, particularly film history. Weirdly, two very different things which are connected. So it does very much have the spaghetti Western aesthetic. There's not a lot of talk, just like something like A Fistful of Dollars, okay? And you kind of got this lone gunman marching through the arid plains, much like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, something like that. So that's on the one hand, it's sort of like tipping its hat very effectively to the Westerns, the good Westerns of the past. On the flip side, this idea of a very dangerous, very capable, violent man looking after, in essence, an infant is Lone Wolf and Cub, which is a glorious series of schlock. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Action samurai flicks, which were shown in like grindhouses in America. They were came out in the 1970s and they're just great fun. There's gallons of blood everywhere, but it's ridiculous over the top stuff action. And the idea is there's this little child and the samurai's going to protect them. Indeed, at one point, it's, you know, even the pram is he's being pushed around him becomes kind of weaponized. It's almost a weapon in its own right. A bit like what Grogu. Grogu can sometimes look after himself. And it's just glorious fun. But you might say, why are these two connected? Because A Fistful of Dollars 
was based on the samurai film by Akira Kurosawa called Yojimbo, which literally means the bodyguard. So we're back to bodyguard duties again. There was actually a sequel, which was not turned into a Western. It was not the sequel to A Fistful of Dollars, which is called For a Few Dollars More. They're actually quite different. But the sequel was called Sanjiro, and Sanjiro's actually Yojimbo's name. So Sanjiro is a bodyguard. That's how Sanjiro Yojimbo. So anyway, so you got some added stuff there about some film history on top of everything else. So you can see that bounty hunters are kind of cool, and obviously they're going to influence other places. And so in Britain, I've got to do a little shout out to easily the best comic book that's ever come out of Britain, 2000 AD. It gave you Judge Dredd, which everybody knows about because he's been turned into two movies, but also you've got people like Kevin O'Neill, you've got so many different, Brian Bolland, the artist, and, and just loads of artists, Dave Gibbons, etc. So basically, the two men, Alan Moore and David Gibbons, behind Watchmen, which is considered one of the greatest comics ever made, both of them are British, and both of them finished at 2000 AD, and then moved to DC Comics, and they were allowed to kind of do almost anything they wanted to, and they came up with Watchmen, and as many people have said, that's exactly the kind of sort of anti-authoritarian twist on the usual superheroics that you would get in something like 2000 AD. But another thing that happened in 2000 AD, and again, one of my favourite comic strips from the 1980s, was Strontium Dog, starring Johnny Alpha. And this is a thing that could easily be turned into a TV show, and I guess nowadays with modern budgets and technology, it'd be very easy and relatively low cost to do so. The Mandalorian is kind of similar. But in this world, which is set in the far future, there are all these mutants because of various radioactive events. Lots of people are having babies with mutations. And these mutants are absolutely shunned from society. So the only job that they can do is bounty hunting. And so pretty much every comic strip story is like, okay, there's a new bounty, and then they go and attack them. There's a source of wicked sense of humor to 2000 AD, prevalent in Judge Dredd, but also here in Strontium Dog as well. In essence, at one point, they're fighting a criminal gang called the Osmogs, and they look suspiciously like the Osmonds, as in the hit 70s group in America. And the Osmogs all have a lot of teeth, you know, very big teeth, much like the Osmonds were known for their perfect teeth and perfect smiles. So that's a sort of like cheeky thing. And Johnny Alpha, each one of these ones had different types of mutations. There's McNulty, and basically he looks pretty normal, except the top of his head, he's got lots of little stubby stumps. There was another one that basically had no mouth and one eye. And in the case of Johnny Alpha, he actually looked completely human, except his eyes. He had no pupils in his eyes, and he could do x-ray vision. Why are they called strontium dogs? Because strontium-90 is a highly radioactive isotope, and that's one of the things that could cause various radioactive burns or potentially mutations in people as well. I strongly advise you go nowhere near strontium-90. It is a terrible, awful radioactive element and isotope. Please, it is extraordinarily dangerous and won't necessarily give you mutant powers. But you've got an example there of an entire really popular series of comic strips that are again about bounty hunters. But again, in Britain, we don't have bounty hunters. So this is all exotic and slightly American. It is worth pointing out that there are other examples of bounty hunting reaching pop culture, even film level as well. So, for example, there's a reality show starring Dwayne Chapman, whose nickname is Dog.
and there's literally a reality show with him called Dog the Bounty Hunter and Dog and Beth on the Hunt. Beth is his partner, for the record. So I wouldn't necessarily want the nickname Dog. It has positive and negative connotations. But I've actually watched an episode or two of that, and it's thoroughly entertaining. It seems to sort of fill a gap, if you like. There's also Steven Seagal, who I'm going to spend as little time on as possible. The man is horrible. And he, for a while, after doing worse and worse movies that are going straight to video, he actually did a reality show where he was kind of like a marshal and, in essence, was basically a bounty hunter. That series got canned after a particularly forced entry. A, a dog actually died in the process of that, the owner's dog. So that's a dog that didn't need to die and another reason to hate Steven Seagal. So there we go. And then there's the weirdest one. Okay, this is so weird it gets turned into a movie. So if I say bounty hunter, pick in your mind what you might have as an image. I'm talking about real world now. Let's get rid of Mandalorian helmets and armor and things like that. No best car, etc. So... Dwayne Dog Chapman, I think you can just, you can almost tell, you can almost hear the mullet in that, and you can also tell that the guy's probably pretty big, and he is. However, there's Domino Harvey, who a movie was made of her life called Domino. I'm really not making this up. This is one of these films that kind of came and went, and everybody forgot to even existed, but this might make you think, uh, maybe I should watch that, because of all the people that you think should perhaps be playing a bounty hunter. The movie, by the way, came out in 2005. Who could possibly play a bounty hunter from Britain? And the answer is Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley is not the sort of build that you think might need to forcibly put down uh, a running fugitive or something like that, being able to wrestle them to the ground, etc. Kira Knightley, I think, comes across as a really lovely person, really self-deprecating, and I think she's looked absolutely stunning in certain movies, like Atonement in that just absolutely jaw-dropping emerald green dress. You know, she's actually developed her acting career. Okay, she's probably not the world's greatest actress, okay? I don't think Jodie Foster's going to be, or Meryl Streep's going to be too worried too far, but people start having a go at her. It's like, no, she's picked good roles and she's done things differently, and in 2005... I can't think of a different role for her to take than playing a bounty hunter in America. But Domino Harvey, which is the name of the girl she is playing, is a real British model who moved to America and ended up becoming a bounty hunter. Tragically, she dies from a fentanyl overdose in the same year the movie comes out. She was in her 30s. So it's an incredibly sad story. It's an incredibly unusual story, and that movie, directed by Tony Scott, brother of Ridley Scott, who sadly jumped off a bridge, committed suicide. I'm not making any of this stuff up, by the way. I know all these sentences sound insane, but you can fact-check everything I've just said. It's all true, and I've seen Domino. It's not great. Now, the thing about both Tony and Ridley Scott is I don't think either of them have ever made a bad-looking movie. They always look gorgeous, and Tony's made some sensational movies. Do you remember Top Gun? Do you remember Crimson Tide? You, you know, there, do you remember Man on Fire with Denzel Washington? So, um, okay, he's made some absolutely sensational movies. This is one which is a case of style over substance, and, and Kira Knightley is trying way too hard, and while she is 
playing a real person. It's very hard to get over the fact that there is a, I don't know what it is in pounds because I'm British and I do things in stone and stuff like that, but I'm going to say a hundred pound woman. She is a petite woman just trying to play super tough with all these other people. I got nothing for you, people. If you want to see something different and unusual, check it out, okay? But this neatly leads me into the real world of being a, I'm going to say it the right way, a bail enforcement agent in real American culture and history. Now, the basic background, which is one of the reasons why modern-day bail enforcement agents don't like the term bounty hunter, is bounty hunter was sometimes used in pre-Civil War America to denote somebody who is trying to track down a, an escaped slave. This process also happened in South America as well. So it wasn't just unique to North America, it also happened in South America too. Basically, the concept is that if you're a slave, you're somebody's property, and if you run away, that's almost like theft, and so somebody has the right to bring you back again. This is one of the many reasons why slavery is a terrible thing, because human beings aren't property, okay? Now, that is actually quite different to what happens after the Civil War, but you can understand why people might kind of want to distance themselves from that. Uh, and I don't think there are any uh, any kind of modern bounty hunters who are pro-slavery. I feel the need also to put that out there because most of them are big, scary people and they know how to hunt people down. Why is this not a thing in somewhere like Britain? And the answer is it's actually how the bail system works. There's a fundamental difference, which it took me a while to learn this, between America and Britain. So in Britain, if you are put on bail for, let's say, £100,000, that means you have to put up £100,000 and then you can go and do your own stuff. And then when you're required to go back to the courtroom to have your court case, you then turn up and then they give you the 100000 back again. In America, fundamentally, it's different. Let's say your bail is $100,000. You pay it into a bail bondsman or you might get a bail bondsman to actually raise it for you because you have to give them the money and then an actual bond has to be given to the court. You can't just give them cold, hard cash. So that's the reason why bail bondsman exists in America. But the difference there is that it's kind of held by the court. You will never see that 100000 back again. If you turn up in court, it goes to the court. It sort of, I guess, helps run the justice systems of America. But the thing is, if you don't turn up again, well, then they can use at least some of that money to get the interest of a bounty hunter. In other words, this is the bail of 100000 We will pay you 10% of that if you can bring them back. And if you can bring them back alive, we'll pay you 20%. If you bring them back dead, we'll pay you 10% of that. So that's not really the way it works in the 21st century, but that's exactly the way it worked in the cowboy times. When you see those signs, wanted dead or alive, that is basically instructions to the bounty hunters saying, look, usually you can earn more money if you can bring them back and then they can face justice or... You know, if you just want to bring them back and we know that they didn't get away, you'll get paid a less amount of that. And indeed, you know, there are entire movies like True Grit where he always goes out and kills the guy because it's easier to bring back a dead body than a, a living person who might try and run off again. Stuff like that. And the key element, because I say sort of semi-law enforcement, and the reason for that is because it's 1873 with the Supreme Court noting that they are part of U.S. law enforcement. 
but they don't have to follow any specific qualifications. If you become a police officer, you actually have to go through police training and you get put on a register, you're recognised, you know, you are part of a government system. It's also worth pointing out that law enforcement officers are paid from taxpayers' dollars, basically. Whereas a bounty hunter, in essence, is a free agent. They are allowed to wear a badge, but it must clearly state bail enforcement agent, not bounty hunters, we've already said, but it can't say US police enforcement or US law enforcement. It, it's not allowed to do that because actually impersonating a police officer is a crime. And there is a part of the government, law enforcement, that does do the job of a bail enforcement agent. And they are called US Marshals. US Marshals have again been in pop culture for a number of different reasons. Most notably, after 9-11, US Marshals were allowed to fly on planes with guns, and basically the cabin crew were allowed to know who was sitting where with a gun so that they could just be aware of who was armed to stop any further attacks and things like that. That was only applicable on US planes, and I believe that was only on internal planes, possibly applied to external, but it'd have to be on things like Delta or US or America. You get the idea. So that's one thing. The other thing in pop culture is one of the last great action films done by Harrison Ford, you know, while he was still kind of in his prime, was The Fugitive, when he was being chased by Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy Lee Jones absolutely steals that movie. He ends up winning Best Supporting Actor Oscar for that. It was a great role. I'm going to say that Rafe Fiennes playing the Commandant in Schindler's List was better by a country mile, but okay, Tommy, have the Oscar, okay? Because, you know, on any other year, I guess you might well have won it. He's got great speeches. He's, you know, really kinetic. He's one of these people where he's a tough guy, but he's a fair guy kind of thing. And there's the great bit where he finally corners Harrison Ford and he goes, I didn't kill my wife. And he says, I don't care because his job isn't to find out whether the man in front of him is innocent or guilty. His job is to bring him in and let the legal department work it out. So a situation would be as if there is somebody on, and this is something that started in the 1930s in America, that you get the FBI's most wanted list. So the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. And if you grab anybody from that list, you'll literally see the amount of money that you earn as a reward. So number one on the FBI's most wanted list as the time of recording is Alexis Flores. He's not a nice guy at all. That's why he's number one. He's wanted for kidnapping, murder and escaping custody. He was sent back to his home country of Honduras where he escaped the prison. So he's still at large, presumably somewhere in Honduras. And if a bail enforcement agent, which is harder because Honduras is not a part of American jurisdiction, but if you're able to get him into a plane or into a police station, the US government will pay you $100,000. The man's incredibly dangerous. Please do not see this as in me in any way condoning that as a plan of action. This is a podcast. This is not an all points bulletin being sent out by the FBI, okay? But it's just a case in point. So if you like, it's something where you can earn a living. It's something where it's a bit exciting. It's a bit cool. And you're not restricted by the same ways as something like the police force. You can earn a lot more than a police officer in theory, but it is dangerous and you still absolutely do have to follow the laws. You can't just burst into someone's house and start shooting because that's not allowed. 
even though I'm aware that sometimes the police do that, but then it leads to a whole court case around it and stuff like that. It gets complicated. But what I'm saying is that the concept of a bounty hunter still exists with bail enforcement agents, and I'm pretty sure there's a few people out there who got into it because they really liked Boba Fett back when they were a kid. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O S E A Malibu.com code SUMMER.